Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, here we are again for another another episode of Your Valuable Home, uh, the podcast. And Kev, what do we got today? You, in, uh, Ron, we got some great shows coming up. But this one sh- replay, we have Mark's coming back on there to talk about his kitchen and his basement. We are halfway through the job. Uh, we have another horror story, which, again, there's always a surplus of horror stories. We're getting more and more as we speak. So we'll be talking about that. And what do we got for the featured segment? Well, for a featured segment today, we've got Gary Toth and Raj Mobir from the uh, Placemakers. Yeah, Gary's on the show before. He's been on the show before. Raj has not been. And we're going to be talking about why some towns flourish while other towns flounder and what does it take to bring a town up. And that is part one of a two-part series because Gary recommended a book to me by Dar Williams, who's singer, songwriter, and uh, what I what I learned at a, what I saw in a thousand towns, and we are going to have her on the following week to join with the placemakers oh, nice. to talk about all this. So you stuff. read? I That's read. Exciting. I, read. You look at I that. read. I read a lot, as a matter of fact. So let's get right into the replay. We have Mark on the phone. Mark, hey, thanks for doing this again. No problem. Thank you. All right. So I, I remember when we first talked. We talked about the schedule that's going to be out that i'm going to be doing it in a couple of days uh you'll have the schedule it's about a two to three week job we're going to get most of it done and then start the the countertops and stuff like that why don't we walk us through the past two weeks since we started the job and how we're at and what do you think so far well i just happen to have a copy of that schedule in front of <laughs> and you're you're <laughs> you happen to be exactly on time with it somehow so you must have known i was going to be on a radio program so first they wrecked my house and now they're starting <laughs> to fix it they tore out a kitchen Demolished the basement, moved everything out, started framing almost immediately, took care of some loose ends and stuff and some plumbing issues that we had. We wound up with a couple of plumbing issues that had been taken care of. Looked like we had a master of all traits who lived in my house before us. So we had to fix up after that. All the electrical work appears to be done. Drywall's up. Spackling's just about done, I believe, right? You guys are standing and priming now? Uh, we're going to be doing that uh, starting tomorrow. The uh, third coat just got applied yep. today. And uh, well, the basement's going to take a little bit longer. I, I was talking to Mark last night, and I said, hey, listen, I've got a few appointments. Can you turn the fans off? We have some fans running because the basement's not drying as quick. So that might be into a few more days for the drive. But that, that's fine because we can get right into the kitchen because we are going to be painting, which I call it rough paint, and then install the cabinets. So we get our, our template and get everybody moving, still keep everything moving. We're actually about a day ahead of schedule for the upstairs. The downstairs is still going to be on schedule. But Mark, when you were talking about those mishaps and the problems, I got to tell you this. I was at my daughter's softball game, and one of the guys who I was talking to said, I saw you working uh, you know, in that area in Southampton. I said, yeah. They said, you know, I knew, I knew the guy that lived there before. You know, he was an electrician. I, I started tearing up laughing. Going, you got to be kidding me. I said, you knew the guy? I said, the electrician that was there, I said, he used to put pieces of wire together. He had 12 2 so he, was he a contractor or was he, he was doing it do yourself or who didn't he put do it that well? 15 different kinds of wire together just to run a line. Then he put all these splices in. 
Then I had to show the homeowner. I said, hey, Mark, what, what do you think about this? I mean, even Mark, he saw that. He said, this, this can't be good. And we actually did the show. Last week's show was uh, me talking about how bad some of the electric and plumbing was because it was in pretty bad shape that they did that. But was he a contractor? He was a he contractor. He was a contractor. Mark, oh, was he a contractor, oh, the, oh, the, the, the previous homeowner? Yeah, that's what I'm told. You know, the bad part about all that stuff is if you can rig that stuff the way he did, you definitely know how to do it right. You just didn't care to. Absolutely. I mean, but the one thing is, is that you're doing it as a contractor. Somebody's going to be living there. Even if you sell the house, somebody's still going to be living there. He had splices that were just wrapped in tape and wire nuts. <laughs> there was about 15 different splices inside the, the, the kitchen area to get wires from one side to the other. It's a fire hazard. Unbelievable. But what he's talking about, the plumbing, that uh, will let all of our new listeners understand that. So my plumber got there, and the, the basement plumbing was done. <laughs> my plumber calls him and says, we got a little bit of problem here. Uh, I'm going to jackhammer a little bit more out, but there's no traps anywhere in the existing plumbing. So it was somebody actually came in, did the flooring because it was all new schedule 40. There were no traps, no vents, no anything. They were just in the toilet. They flushed and it went right into the main drain. No traps whatsoever. The vanity had no traps whatsoever. And there was no venting for it. And as he started taking more out. What are traps for somebody who doesn't know what that is? All right, what a trap is, is that when you look in your under your sink and you see it goes down and up in a, like a P like trap. A- so what that is through yeah yeah, Mm -hmm. that your house as with that plumbing needs to have gases that need to get out well those gases go up through the venting that you see up through your roof but it still gets into the the vanity area or could be in from the tub and what that does is it doesn't allow the gases to seep back into the house so that going down and up it's not going to go down and up again there's usually water at the bottom of the trap so it it doesn't allow them gases to get inside the house there was none he decided to run it in all this in, in all this plumbing all the basement plumbing. Wow. And we're, so this is the difference with us. We get permits for the job. So we had the inspector come out to take a look at it. Well, he'd have failed us immediately. It would have been a nightmare to do. So we had to take the initiative to uh, to do it and do it right. And these were some of the problems. But it, we overcame it pretty quickly. And that was one of the great things that we did of getting the plumber in there a day early. Because we didn't know this was going to happen. It was under concrete. But as we investigated a little bit further, we knew we had a little bit of a problem. So we did a few major upgrades. I think you put a new hot water heater in also. Yeah, might as well. We looked at the date on that thing and said, you know what? Goodbye. <laughs> Mark makes very quick decisions. Yeah, I do too. I mean, once it's once it looks like it's going to be DOA any day, you get rid of it, right? And he's going to be done for the next 10 well, to 15 years. If you ever had a flood or any kind of water damage, you'll take any precaution you can. Yeah, I agree with you. I do the same thing. Yeah, Absolutely. we put a separate drain in for that. We have an alert monitor for the, the water if there's any type of issues or fluctuations in the water. So everything's already in place that we're going to be doing down there. So just it's security. It's like an insurance policy. It's going to be able to help them out without using insurance because we're going to know ahead of time. In, in a case like this, you know, it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to find when you put a part of an existing house. Do you build time into the schedule to account for the unforeseen or do you just deal with it as it comes up? Most of the time, yes. I do it because not every job goes perfect. The last one when Leslie was talking about her kitchen, Mark wasn't there during their certain times when he sees me panicking. Like I said, when I talked about once the drywall's up, the panicking is over for me because every issue that we did run into, we had to correct. And the guys who I've been working with, like the electrician or the plumber, they're the ones physically doing the work and we're there. So what we did is worked in conjunction to get these problems solved and solved quickly. So that's what I, I said to Mark when we first started talking that I'm going to be there. I'm going to be one. Dave and I are there physically doing the work every day, especially Dave. He's always there about 6.45, 7 in the morning. But with us being there, we can make those adjustments. And that's what I always tell people. When you're dealing with other companies, it's a salesman and the sub, the S&S that we always talk about. Mm-hmm. Nobody's there. If nobody's there, how do you get things corrected? Now, once that starts, the domino effect is going to keep happening. 
because nobody's there to correct the problem. And if you don't correct the problem, you're not getting your inspections. We're done with inspections. We got the last drywall inspection a couple of days ago. We passed, and we're we're at a home stretch right now. Good, 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 good. So it really didn't slow you up that much. Uh, yeah, we just had to work a couple extra hours. Yeah, but not a big deal. No, no. Okay. I, I, well, after the last conversation, which is recorded because we did our what was the second or third podcast with Mark, I'm sure he's looking at that schedule quite thoroughly right now. Mark, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, pretty much. You're, 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 well, you're right on the schedule, so I can't complain about anything. I mean, even with the problems and stuff like that. Like you said, though, having the plumber in there that one day early, not knowing there was a problem, that sort of buffered it a little bit, and, and we're able to move forward. Yeah. Well, again, deal with the right guy. Uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier. Plus, he's a little bit more flexible with me because I give him so much business. Because mm-hmm. I had to have him come out back and forth just to get a little odds and ends so we can work in conjunction. I got some work done, framed the walls up. He was glad to come back. It wasn't that big of a deal. I tell you, a couple of days ago, we got the drywall up. I just, oh, I felt great because I know I'm at the home run strike. Yeah, you do that, right? You the drywall, that. now that's something I'm, I'm getting a little bit older now. Dave and I are getting a little bit older, so we, um, but we're there every day. We're still watching the guys. It's one of the biggest drywall companies around that we use, mm-hmm. and they've been doing it for the past seven years with us. So Yeah, they come in, boom, boom, boom. They're it's done. Done in no time Same guys all, yeah. do the spackle, mm-hmm. the two brothers that do the spackle. Uh, I'll give them a little shout out, Pat and Noah, that do all, all the spackle work. So they've been with me for the past seven years also. I always recommend those guys to uh, do our jobs because of that and everything's working out it, it really is uh we've got the only thing we, have, we do have a lot to do is get that paint color <laughs> and once we get that paint color <laughs> the company's working on that right now uh the, the, is it the boss or you the one picking that up the boss yeah i, I guess i should have texted her on that one we, we have some selections in uh, i like two of the selections and i told her to get hold of you yeah we saw some time i picked up the primer and uh, the ceiling but one thing with paint, I always tell people, don't stress about paint. It's paint. Exactly. And no one ever knew what your choices were, so they can't ever say, you know, what is that? Yeah, true. Yeah. But, but when you first walk in, you're going to see the flooring's going to be done. You're going to have new countertops, cabinets, backsplash. Probably about two weeks after you get done your job, you're not even going to notice the paint. You're going to be looking at more of the color. But don't pick right. any off-the-wall color. Right. But I'm sure it's going to be just elegant to just make everything pop. Yeah, we're going with sort of a buffered form of white, it looks like, you know, just a little bit of a tint to it uh, of some kind. But that's pretty much it. It's going to keep keep it simple. Yeah, best. Simple is best. Right. As long as There's a lot going on there already, so we don't need to we don't we don't need to make anything look better. We just want to tie everything together. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't want something yeah. to be outstanding that really doesn't cost a lot of money that people aren't going to look at. Because the kitchen, from the beginning that your existing kitchen to now that the drywall's up. So for the past two weeks that we were working there, there was no drywall. When we installed the drywall, did your place look bigger in the kitchen or smaller? The kitchen was pretty much what I expected because, you know, you can sort of imagine through the wall between the kitchen and and the dining room. But I'll tell you something, that downstairs, wow, is that going to be big? (laughs) It did. Downstairs meeting the basement? The basement. Basement, yeah. It turned yeah. out a lot better. How many than square I feet is it? It's got to be close to a thousand. It looks like it. Well, you know, when when you compare it, you know, uh, as Kevin would say, port to starboard, right? Pretty much. Um, <laughs> That's about like mine. My, my <laughs> campus, right? yeah. As that yeah. boating term again. Yeah. Which one's port, by the way? I'm gonna, I, but I'm taking my test very soon. I, I, I bought left something. Left is port. Yes, left is port. I, I just know it's 297 studs. That's all I do. Is, you know, <laughs> took a look at it, but the rooms are they're nice size. <laughs> But one thing we started working actually this morning when I went over there was the fireplace. That is really going to stand out. I think that was the, the perfect idea that and Mark made the decision not to center it off the, the open wall, which when you went down there would look major offset. It's actually underneath. Oh, you have the a fireplace down there too? There's going to be a built-in gas fireplace. A real oh, nice okay. One too. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
you have some stone that you're going to be putting around the fireplace, correct? Yes. Now, is Mike going to be doing the same stone around the cabinets also, or is there going to be a, a blend? The stone is going to match from what is, I believe, it's the bar area to the, to the fireplace. Now, the cabinets, are they going to be the same color as the kitchen upstairs? Is that one of the things that you decided? They are, yeah. Okay. They are, yeah. Yeah, upstairs is going to carry to downstairs, yes. Yeah, it's made a little issue because of the backboard of certain floor colors. Yeah, but that was really no big deal. That's another one of those things, okay, this is not available, but no one's going to know that that was the option in the first place, so just pick something else that's similar. And, I mean, those floors, there's just so many options. I mean, it's it's kind of scary to have that many options when push comes to shove. But uh, we intentionally, the downstairs floor is different than the upstairs. The cabinets and everything all match, and, and the tone of the walls are all going to be the same. But I, I think because... Upstairs, there's going to be a lot of light coming in from that door. We went with a darker floor for texture purpose. And then downstairs, I think just to make it look a little bit not so closed in because there's not a lot of, um, you know, window light getting in down there. We figured we would lighten it up a little bit, make it look a little bit bigger and use a way a much lighter color floor. What are you doing on the floor? What's Cortec. Everything's Cortec. Cortec. Everything's Cortec. Wise choice. Wise choice. Well, from the beginning, yeah. there was, we, we did talk about all the options. But when we Mark had picked out one of the colors, there was a back order for a few months. And there was you know, another 300 still to pick from, so we had to pick another option that was going to be suitable for him, and it, and it worked out. Everything's going to be... But it was Cortec, Cortec. Cortec, Cortec okay, was okay. going to be going in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. But even though that delay is still going to be a week behind, it's, it's not holding anything up. We're still going to fall into place of getting everything done so far on schedule. We have... Uh, the only delay was the... Uh, uh, we have a egress going in, uh, some Bilco doors. So I have a section of the area that's not framed because I, those guys need to get in and cut the wall and then do the digging outside. And once that's done, then I can fill everything back in. Okay. But that's mm-hmm. not going to slow me up because once that's done, I'm still going to be upstairs. Is the egress just one of those window well things? I think, Mark, you're going with the uh, the Bilco doors. No, correct? no. Yeah, we went with the Bilco oh, doors. Oh, with the Bilco doors, so, okay. Be, yeah, yeah, and that's another situation where it's more it's more tight and drier to use the Bilco doors. I'm not a big fan of anything that's going to leak. And they said the probability of leaking with the window system set up is much higher than it is with the Bilco doors. So you mean the well, the well system where you got the question. window in that well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not a fishbowl. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> well, people think it's good. Yeah, because the house doesn't yet. Yeah. There, there, there's no sump system in the house, so we don't really have an option. So it's dry or nothing. Yeah. And your neighbors has a, a little bit different. Mark Mark's on a hill. And what's odd about this is when people always talk about that I live on top of a hill, that I'm not going to have water. So Mark's one house, then his neighbor Harry, a buddy of mine, uh, he... Hydrostatic pressure. He gets a ton of water in his house, and then it drops down about another 10 feet. And Tony down there, he gets no water at all. And he's Hmm. at the bottom. And Mark's probably... Go go figure. I don't know how that... Welcome to Water Management 101. Wow. Uh, I just stand on my patio with my arms crossed. (laughs) (laughs) And get to enjoy because a lot of your neighbors were asking, like, what are you doing there? And I said, well, we're going to be doing a basement also. Uh, but I said, it's not going to be a normal basement. I mean, it, it, we have a full bathroom. There's going to be a, it, it's going to be a great area. It's going to be a great entertaining area. I think the longest part we had to do was the, the shelves that were there where we're going to be putting the cabinets had more liquor on those shelves than we had to move. It took them so much time to move those. And then when I was talking to Mark, I said, you know, just, I said, just put them in my truck. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get rid of them for you. <laughs> That's fine. So, uh, but yeah, we're, we're, we're getting close and, uh, yeah, but I want to get you on just to see how things work, that it, it can be done. That's what I want to tell people that we're nothing special. We're just a working contractor that when I tell people we're going to be done in three to four weeks on most of the jobs and Naga would always 
something possible can go wrong. But yeah, we had some issues. We corrected it. We did the job, and we should still be on schedule. Everything that I promised you from the beginning, we are we're, we're getting there. So, do you have any questions or anything else to add for our listeners? You know, if, if you were a day behind or something was wrong, I'd have a question. But we're right where we need to be. I, I can see the progress. We went from something to nothing and back to something again. True. Yeah, absolutely true. Yep. Last question I need to ask you, and this is what I do for most of the homeowners, because a lot of people always say, hey, we're getting a job done. It's going to take about 20 weeks to do a, a kitchen. or, And I said, how long are you going to be? 20 weeks? Is that what you said? And they're like, yeah. I said, well, I, I can tell you this. After the first two weeks of the job, people are going to get itchy to want you out of there. And even though it's a four-week job, and like I said to, to Mark and when we were on the last show, we said, uh, it's going to be yeah, a four-week job. Yeah, they still have to live in the house, right? To, right. Yeah. And by doing that, do you feel any tension yet of saying hey it's time to get done even though we're still on schedule mm, no but i am on a first name basis with every diner manager in within <laughs> 10 miles yeah what you ought to do is talk to your neighbors and say hey listen you know i really don't have a kitchen you know but you can always bring us over for dinner we can now sit outside it's warm we'll have a nice dinner out there and then you'll receive yeah, we've done that a few times yeah, yeah we, we've done that a few times well, you know yeah. what? You do have awesome neighbors. Even other customers of mine, they are still great neighbors. So I, I, I do like the uh, fact that everybody's interested in your uh, understanding what's going on because everybody's watching out for everybody in your neighborhood. You got a great neighborhood you do live in. Yeah, we do. Yeah, that, that's why. That's one of the reasons we're remodeling as opposed to packing our bags. To tell you the truth, it really is. Yeah, neighborhoods are great. Uh, that's a big factor. Big factor, especially if you have kids, you know, and they have other kids they play with there. So, uh, wise move. So yeah, back to the port side. <laughs> when you know what when you know what you have and and the the possibility of what you get is an unknown, uh, you know it's it's best to stick with it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially yeah. if you love it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, with us doing the kitchen and bathroom, we're at the base right now. Everything's about just the base where it's n- nothing fancy. It's just laying the foundation for the ginger, which is going to start in a couple of days, which is the cabinets, the countertops, the flooring. In the next couple of weeks, that's what's going in. And we're uh, right on schedule. I confirmed with a, a lot of uh, the people that I do deal with that are going to be installing the uh, the countertops, the flooring. Uh, this is where I, I Mark. I didn't want to blast you with too many more emails, but I probably sent about. I <laughs> I have a way of just over emailing everybody. That's just my job. I do that because I don't want I don't want any problems or miscommunication. So what I have done is I probably emailed about three or four times. Everybody saying, "Hey, we're on schedule. Everything's good. We're, we're ready to rock and roll. We have our templates set up, and uh, and in less than a week we're going to be doing that." And you're going to be back to having a, a nice kitchen and starting yep. cooking. I'd like to get you back on the air to, yep. to talk about the finish, everything you've done in the finish and how you liked everything and how everything was during this process because a lot of people don't understand what you have to go through when you're doing a kitchen, how much we're disrupting your life. Oh, yeah, much more so than many other rooms because you don't use your living room every day. You don't use uh, a couple of rooms, every, yeah. a couple of other rooms in the house every day, but you use the kitchen every day. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you, you you never get used to that. I mean, uh, I mean, you're very conscious of what's going on, but you you still walk towards that kitchen for something. Once you get there, you realize you can't get it. I mean, that's just the way it is. There's there's just no way around it. Right. True. Yeah. yeah true. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring you back on in a couple of weeks when we have everything done. Uh, let's talk about more of the finish, especially the the basement, the uh, finish, because I, I know we're running out of time now. But I want to talk about that bathroom. But real quick question: that bathroom downstairs is it much bigger than you thought? Yeah, and it's much bigger than I thought. And you guys even added a couple inches to it when we decided to change the the water heater configuration um, because you moved it um, 
to a different area, which gave us, I, I, I would say, at least another you know six or eight inches of depth to that area. So it, it, it's working on very well. Everything's going to be nice and roomy um, in everything. We're, we're not big fans of jamming stuff up and everything. Uh, so, but but the size there, it's got a nice size shower. It's got plenty of um, you know leg room in there. Perfect. Yeah, I can't wait to post those yeah. pictures, the final pictures on the my social media. So, Mark, thanks again for yeah. coming on Your Valuable Home Podcast and spending a little bit of time here with us today. Okay, Kev, what do we got for a horror story today? Is Ron, this a scary one? I'm not happy. Uh-oh. I tell you, I'm not happy. This industry's gone downhill like you wouldn't believe. The horror stories are coming in. They're coming in, they're coming in a lot right now. With the horror story that people are asking about, it's basically a lot of these horror stories with jobs that are in the process of getting done. Right. And people aren't happy with the person they chose. And I said, well, one of the reasons why is because, number one, did you go for the low price? Were you looking for a fast job because the guy said they can do it right away? These are the information I'm trying to absorb from my listeners and try to let them know that there, there are some issues. And one of the big issues that I am finding, because I'm at, I'm at a few homes talking to homeowners, and uh, they're saying, well, listen, I've got a guy that can start right away. I'm, we're going to have to go with him because we need to get this done. Well, this was a job that just uh, was called in. I was talking to a gentleman, and he said he signed with a guy because he could start right away. And basically what it was is a tree fell on the back of the house. It did some damage to the drywall, the, the, the roof. There were some structural issues. But it wasn't structural where you needed an architect. All I had to do was just take the ceiling joist out and the floor joist that got damaged on the one end of the house and get it fixed up, which is some drywall painting and a new roof and a little bit of plywood. So these guys said they can start right away. Well, after signing contracts, I, I said to them, well, listen, when you got your contract, you know in Pennsylvania, you've got to have a start date, an end date, You've got to get a time, just in case of weather printing, that when you do a job, it's going to be on the contract. Uh They got the deposit, big one too, which was not supposed to be in the the laws. They took 50% down, which HICPA only allows in the state of Pennsylvania, 33%, a third is what you can take. But what they did is they started to just kind of get some things out there and then left. Three weeks later, they didn't even show up on the job. Then after three weeks, uh, which you had to get the roof done first, they started doing the patching. Now they're still, he said, uh, the roof had a big blue tarp over it. And with the big blue tarp, wouldn't you want to do that first, he said, because if you're fixing drywall, if that tarp blows off and leaks, we're going to have an issue. That, he said, we're going to be just fine. Well, a few weeks ago, we did have a heavy rainstorm. They started patching the drywall. Uh, the tarp didn't do so well. Uh, and the high winds blew off, leaked again. Oh, so wow. they had to do everything over wow. again. But here's the worst part. that When I was talking to the gentleman, he said, you know, because of that, the contractor was trying to get more money out of them because... He said there was some damage and further damage. He said, well, you're, you're the general contractor. He said, why don't you do the roof first? I, well, I was kind of figuring you want to do first. So the roof's sealed tight, and you're not going to have any further issues. And it just it, it snowballed. It's been 18 weeks, and he said they are just about wrapping up. And 18 weeks? It's less than a week job. And when we talked to Mark, you can see I'm doing a full 1,000-square-foot basement uh, which we jackhammered the whole floor out, doing the whole upstairs, of, of the, the whole dining room, kitchen's gone, rewired everything because everything was a mess, got the permits, drywalled, because there was a ton of drywall in there. And we're going to be uh, starting to put the puzzle together, painting in, in less than two weeks. In a case like that, what makes it go that bad? Here's the problem. They're ready for homeowners because this is what contractors... Well, the backlogs with certain building materials, right? Was that a factor? No, because they're, you can go to any box store and get plywood, even though you're going to pay an arm and a leg and a leg and a leg. But, but it's there. It's, it's there. there. Yeah. It's available. Okay. But you're, the problem is, is these newer companies that are coming into play, everybody's a contractor right now. And everybody thinks they're a contractor. They can run a job. 
But what they're doing is they're just subcontracting out. Well, yes, the subs are busy. You can't just tell people, hey, listen, I'm going to start your job. I'm going to be there tomorrow. It doesn't work that way if you're not going to be there. That's what these laws in place across every state has, a, has their own variety of laws that state contractors cannot do this. But they're still doing it. So where's the laws that help the homeowners? And that's when I had a few conversations with them. I said, listen, here's what our show does. We're here to protect you, the consumer, not the contractor. The contractor is there to just extort money out of you. That's their, their business. I mean, that's what people do work for. They want money. It's that misleading deceit that they're doing to try to get the money. Here's what I advice for the contractors. Why don't you be fair and honest and give the people fair dates, fair time, fair job, and you're going to get more work out of it. Because this is not going to get any referrals because uh, the gentleman I'm talking to is uh, bashing them on social media. And he's already contacted an attorney for some of the stuff because... Yeah, when a job goes on that long, I'm, I'm saying to myself, how does the contractor make any money? If, if he's got two of those going at the same time, how does he make money? They don't. That's the problem. Then they go out of business. So that contractor you hired to do the job is not in business any longer. So there's your warranty. What if you have problems? Forget it. There is no warranty yeah. at that point. Your and, warranty and, just walked out the door. <laughs> I call it the out-of-sight warranty. Once that truck drives out of oh, sight, yeah. you better cross your fingers. Mm-hmm. Because if that contractor is a newer contractor, how do you know it's going to be in business for another year down the you line? Don't. You don't. Once this economy slows up a little bit, there's going to be a major stop. What happens is these newer contractors are not going to be in business because they just don't have the funding or work that they're going to get because there's no referrals. Uh, people are just not going to just hire because if they're going to be slowing up, the people that are going to be caring about their house are going to be hiring the local contractors that have been around for 30 years. Because everybody, if you notice, everybody in business says that if you look on all the social medias, Hey, I've been in business for 20 to 30 years. Great. I, and I would write on there and say, hey, listen, could you tell me a job that you did where you had to apply for a permit 20 years ago in that township so I can just verify that? Well, if you notice all those social media posts, if you look at my name that's on there, they erase them because they're lying to people. So where is the recourse that people can have to go after the contractors for lying to them? That's the big problem that I'm having. But the, the, the one person that's having a problem with this contractor, the reason why he's so upset with it, he had to contact the lawyers because he's adding so much onto there on, on his mistakes. If you have a roof that's damaged, you've got to fix that first. That's the way it will work. You've got to put the roof on and then you can start the interior work and then the interior work can go. So once you brought the interior guy up first, started patching everything and painting it and it leaked again, it's not the homeowner's fault, it's the contractor's fault and having right. around the job. Right. So why does he have to put another three, $4,000 on their mistake? That's the big problem that I'm having with everybody. Uh, that are in this contracting business because they just don't know what they're doing. I was telling the homeowner, I said, well, listen, why don't I become a doctor? Because he's a doctor. And I said, well, if I can become a doctor, I mean, I, how hard is it to open somebody up? I got some tools. They're great. They can cut through anything. I, why can't I do that? He said, well, it's testing. We've got to go through all this. And I said, I get it. But don't you think we should have that same element for right. contractors? Yeah. yeah. So uh, a lot of these people today are just hiring people because they see something on social media. I tell everybody, listen, if you're going to go on social media, if you're going to hire a contractor off a website without checking anything that we talk about here on the show, it's going to be your problem. That's the difference here. It's not the bad contractor. That's your problem. Yeah. And about two weeks ago, I was telling somebody, because uh, they're in the process of suing somebody. I said, well, walk me through, and they're telling me the whole story. And I said, well, bottom line is that, is the job getting done? He said, yes, but the workmanship is not that good of quality. And I said, here's your problem. The judge is going to say, well, you hired them. That's what you have to live with. As long as they get to what's called an industry standard, just because the guy's no good, you've got to deal with that. How about that one for you? What does the industry standard mean? It's drywalled. It's painted. Uh, it's working in working order. That's about it. Nails are going to pop in five days, but it's up there. 
Well, here's an example. They had siding done. The siding's falling down. That's what, one of the jobs that I was talking Unbelievable. about. Unbelievable. Uh, and it was less than six months. Unbelievable. I can't get a hold of the contractor. That was one of the stories that I'm trying to get a run to talk about it. But these issues that we're having, it's it, it's overwhelming right now. <laughs> How many horror stories that I'm getting? This shouldn't be this way. Well, it's got to be like this across the country. So, you know, for our listeners there, if you've got a horror story, something bad happened to you, get in touch with us. Kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. Ron at yourvaluablehome.net and let us know what it is and we'll put it on the air. You don't have to come on the air to talk about it. We, we can do that. Yeah, I just want to make sure that you're educated. And we're going to be doing a lot of colleges throughout the year that we're going to be talking about on how to break those estimates down. Because here's one a little bit of advice that I'm going to get uh, homeowners a little nervous about. And this is what I talked with somebody last night. When you're getting an estimate and the contractor gives a low ball price and you think you're getting a great deal, take this into consideration. I was asking you questions for the job that I'm trying to get off you. So we were trying to sell a kitchen and a bathroom. Just after talking to you for about seven to 10 minutes, you weren't asking me the right questions. Here's what I can do is that if I give an estimate to you for 25,000, everybody's 35,000, you're going to sign with me. Since those questions you didn't ask me, I didn't put it in the contract. And here in Pennsylvania, since I didn't put it in the contract, what I can do is I know you're going to run into the problems and then I can stick it to you for that extra 10 grand. Just keep upping the cost. Just keep up. And right. Now, and, and people just, they look at you and say, are you serious? I said, absolutely. Talk to your lawyer because I'm not a lawyer, but I, I see it all the time. And we had uh, Mark Ferber, who's phenomenal in Bucks County, where we live here outside of Philadelphia. And he, that's what he does. He goes after these bad contractors. But when I tell people that, now they get nervous. I said, listen, the hardest part of you is not getting the estimate is finding the right contractor to do the job who you're going to be satisfied with. Just because you hire the guy and he gives you a good price, what are you going to get at the end? And, uh, you know, with Mark, it was what was nice about it. It was a referral. But then on top of that, like we talked about in the last episode, I did every one of his neighbors over the past 30 years. So that made my job sell a lot easier. Right. Because we don't advertise. I don't want to advertise because I'm not a tire kicker. I don't want people calling me up saying, I'm looking for 15 estimates. I want the cheapest price. Uh, people that hire us know that you're going to get a fair price. You go most of your job. business from referrals. 99% of right, it's still right, from right, referrals. Right. But these horror stories should never happen. So that's what we're going to do here on the show throughout the year is beside talking with a lot of experts across the nation, I'm going to guide you into getting that right estimate. So if you do get a, a siding job or a kitchen or a window, that you're knowing what you're getting to before you sign that contract. Mm-hmm. So give us a call here or email us at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net and you're listening to Your Valuable Home Podcast. Well, yeah, stick with us too because we've got a wonderful featured segment coming up with two people from the Placemakers Guild talking about why some towns flourish and other towns flounder. All right, Ryan, we had a tough horror story to absorb for our listeners, but I uh, hope they got a great education out of it. And then what do we got for the featured segment? Well, we got something very, very interesting. It's actually a two-parter. We're going to do one this week and one next week. And it has to do with why do some towns and cities in the U.S., in fact, around the world, for that matter, flourish while others flounder? We know, you probably know some around here. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Can making your town the best it can be elevate the value of real estate values? Usually does. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we're fortunate to have two members of the Placemakers Guild with us today to address these and other questions which towns across the country can benefit from. Absolutely. Gary Toth, friend of mine, founding member of the Placemakers Guild. Gary is a change agent, technical expert, and manager in the fields of transportation and land use, using placemaking as the means to change. Now, you're going to wonder what that's it and what that's all about. He's going to tell you about that. And we have Raj, Raj Mullabir, a colleague of Gary's. He leverages 25 years as a landscape architect, transportation land use planner, and urban designer to help clients and community stakeholders create places of enduring value. 
His experience includes service in local government and a public capital infrastructure delivery agency. Gary, welcome back to your valuable home. And Raj, it's great to have you with us for the first time. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Yep. Same here. Same here, Ron. Let's get right into it. Gary, what is placemaking? I know we, we talked about that. Oh, it's about a year ago you were on the show. Yeah, we about a year. About that, but everybody needs a refresher, and we're podcasting now, so that's a whole different kettle of fish. What is placemaking? What is the Placemakers Guild and your mission? Well, one of my main mentors in placemaking was Fred Kent, who was the founder and president of the Project for Public Spaces for 45 years. He had built upon the work of somebody named Holly White, who studied places and what made some successful and others not successful over the years. He liked to call it upside-down planning, and I've, I've adopted that term, too. And so what upside-down planning means is rather than have experts come in and plan and design improvements and present it to a community and get reaction, which usually leads to trouble. Using placemaking, the placemakers field will tap into the local knowledge of what's important to community members themselves, and then come up with sketches of what they want to be when they grow up. Basically, we often call that the place crazy, the place recipe. How do you take the ingredients like cheese and flour and water and pepperoni and sometimes pineapple that have the good ingredients for a pizza? But to them together with a certain recipe and turn a town of different functions into a town that's really a community. A second characteristic of placemaking, which ties into that, is, is the whole idea of creating the place recipe for an entire town before deciding on it. And for instance, how wide the road should be. It's usually backwards, right? When I was at the New Jersey Department of Transportation, we would design a road and we didn't think much about the community other than how would we mitigate the effects? So again, that's why we call it upside-down planning. In fact, placemaking would even consider whether or not you want transit bike lanes and paths instead of the roads. And what are the right mix? Because the town needs all sorts of things. And so during our extensive careers, uh, each of us in the placemakers guild came at placemaking from a different direction. But what we began to notice is that the way we were designing our communities after World War II, and we all grew up in that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, brought a lot of prosperity to America, brought a lot of home ownership, which is out of reach for people. But it also came with unintended societal consequences, such as the obesity epidemic, greenhouse gas emissions, which leads to climate change, loneliness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we committed ourselves to banding together and forming an organization that can help overcome that. Okay. Raj, let's get to our cornerstone question here. Why do some cities and towns flourish while others flounder? What are the building blocks of a thriving town? And we see it here in Bucks County. We can, you can main, name a couple in Bucks County. Well, as Gary just said, it's good pizza. I'm still stuck <laughs> on that pizza, Gary, by the way. Every time you get on the phone, you always talk about food. Yeah. Well, ice cream, I would add to that list. If you have a good ice cream shop or food. I say as an observer uh, of cities, and it has a lot to do with how uh, the world is built and in other words, our places and how they function. You know, a lot of what I'm going to say just parrots what Gary just said. Cities that have evolved edge spaces, those places for casual encounters and casual interactions where they have a diversity of the daily life needs. You know, we just talked about pizza and ice cream, very important daily life needs, but also the grocery store, a bank, the barber, places like that within walking distance. Those places where people can connect with one another, that's key. If you look at places that developed pre-war versus those places that developed post-World War II, you know, in the past, we had houses that had porches and porticos, porticos and uh, verandas. 
where people could see their neighbors as they walked by and they could make that casual connection, even if it wasn't a verbal connection, it was a nod, it was catching the other person's eye as they walked down to either go to school or go to the main street or even go to work. People used to have these edge places that they could encounter one another. Um, the streets were generally slower functioning, very manageable for pedestrians and cyclists and, and other um, vulnerable users of the road. But when you get into the, the post-war suburbs, you know, things aren't quite the same. We, we generally don't do good edge spaces anymore. We're more focused on, on rapid construction. Uh, our land uses are separated, so it's even further away. We generally don't walk to the grocery store anymore. We get into the car. I like to think of the car sometimes as personal armor or protecting ourselves against our neighbors because we don't actually need to see them. We can walk into our garage through the kitchen, put the garage door up, drive to the grocery store, and never see our neighbors. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. I mean, I, I'm thinking about, as you was talking, I'm thinking about my own experiences every day. You know, if I go to the grocery store, you're sort of insulated from people. Even in the grocery store yeah. today with the masks on and everything, I think I know somebody, but I'm embarrassed to go up to them because I did that once and I said, I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> you did that before, even years ago, without the mask. So, yeah, it, I mean, it does happen. I, I, I'm trying to think in my mind how we, what you said is so true, but how much has changed over the past year because of the virus that, that hit us last year? Uh, everything's changed. So yeah. into that yeah. isolation, and how do we get back to that? And absolutely, I, I love the ideas. I'm with Gary and I talking to prior in the show prior, some of the great ideas they had in the, the cities where people can get together for having those areas. And Walk, we're, we're getting bike, closer. all that stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. So I cut you off there. I, I just want to relate my personal experience to what you were saying. No, it's a great point. But I have faith that people, you know, human beings are social creatures. We need people read this interesting article this morning about we're all feeling a bit of malaise. There's, a, there's actually a term for it that has completely slipped my mind. But human beings need connection. They need to see nature. They need to be outside. And as soon as we're all vaccinated, as soon as that herd immunity comes on, I think, you know, it'll take a few months, but we're, we're not going to stay as isolated as we are. I think it'll be easier for places where people have to run into one another. Um, in other places, it might take a little bit longer, but we'll get back to the very positive outcome. Yeah, the sooner the better, too. Hallelujah. I can't wait for that. I'm, all, I'm already double vaccinated, so I... It's funny, when you when you get vaccinated, you have this tendency to think that it's all over and walk into... I forgot my mask this morning when I walked into a store, so... But Gary, let's get back to the bottom line here. When towns flourish, does that actually drive up real estate values? Does, does a rising tide float on boats? Well, I think intuitively we all believe that. I mean, I came to Lambertville in, I lived in Lambertville, New Jersey, on the Delaware River, which is across from Bucks County, where Ron lives. And um, when I first came, the town was affordable. It was very low. In fact, it was, it was a good value for the kind of housing you got. And then a restaurant came in and it was really good and people started coming from other areas. And then, and then more restaurants came in and then more places came in and it sort of snowballed downhill. And all of a sudden, the, the house that I bought for 42000 um, 20 years later, was worth 300000 right? So intuitively, you know it, but let's not take anybody's word for it. Um, I'm a fan of uh, a gentleman by the name of Chris Weinberger, who's a real estate guru. And while he was at George Washington University, in fact, he's still there, he did research in seven major metropolitan areas 
on the relative value of walkable urban areas. And he found a lot of stuff. I mean, there's these, these are 40-page reports that I urge you to to read them, right, or make them accessible to, to the listeners because it's fascinating. But one of the dimensions, for instance, that show the value of real estate is, is that for sale, he, one of the places he did this in was Dallas-Fort Worth. And there, for sale housing and walkable urban areas, had 103% price per square foot premium over the drivable areas. Now, that's not 3% higher. That's a double, 103%. And in New York and Washington, D.C. metro areas, the premium was two times, if not more. And he found this in urban area after urban area around the country. Now, walkable places doesn't automatically indicate great place-making, but it's a prerequisite. And then he wrote a book called The Option of Urbanism. I guess that actually preceded this, and that's another thing that I would recommend people read. But, you know, he, he, he the position in the book was that in communities where you have to drive everywhere, the more you build, the more your investment devalues, right? So you have to widen roads, you have to build more schools, you have to build more stores, and those stores are usually in strip malls. Your schools get overcrowded, the roads get congested, and the views of the farms and countryside are lost. So the more you build, the more your investment devalues. But in walkable communities, each new element you build increases the value of what you own. Yeah, we can see that here in Bucks County. I mean, Doylestown, yeah, town, town, yeah, Doylestown, Newtown, two towns that I know extremely well. I mean, the, the home values in Doylestown are through the roof. Those old Victorians are going for like $2 million. It's just, it's crazy. To both of you, what are some cities and towns our listeners would be familiar with that have flourished in recent history, particularly ones where, you know, members of the Placemakers Guild have been involved? Brad, why don't you start? I'm not sure that your uh, your listeners might be familiar with some of these places, but uh, Stanford, Florida, Raheem City in Florida, Sulphur Springs in Texas, um, they, these are places that I've worked in over the last 20 years, and it's very interesting, the commonalities. They are all what I call um, small Main Street towns um, that were in need of some help, and we were able to go in. It's always a team effort, never one person, and to help them, you know, fix some of their public infrastructure. It's mostly the streets and a park here and there. But it's been amazing how these small communities have started with these little catalyst projects in their historic downtown and the spin-off benefits. So government spent some money on the streets. The building owners began to fix up their buildings. More people came and they, they created a, an engine, this catalytic engine that sort of spread out from the downtown floor outward. And as you were just discussing about property values, it's just tremendous how the property values have increased. Um, we had one uh, person, a stakeholder in Stanford, talk about when she was in graduate school, she was in New York City in Greenwich Village, and it wasn't a very pleasant place at the time, but the artists and the people that moved in made it a really interesting place, and the property values went up. Fact, it went up so much that the artists and the, the people who were living there couldn't afford couldn't it. Couldn't afford so it anymore, yeah. They, mm-hmm. Yeah, they basically packed up and went down to uh, the Coconut Grove where they were having similar problems to what they found in Greenwich Village. And the same thing happened. They made the place really interesting and great, and investment followed them. And then they couldn't afford to live there anymore. And so she ended up in this small town north of Orlando called Sanford, Florida. And she learned from that. She said, you know, now that I know the town is making some investments, the first thing I'm doing is buying property. And sure enough, the property values went up. It's a thriving place. I see my Facebook buddies in Florida 
during the pandemic. They're all on Stanford Main Street. So it's amazing to see what's happened. Ron, let me chime in. The other day I drove through, I was in Philadelphia, and I drove through um, Northern Liberty, Fishtown, and Kensington. And I was impressed with the, the turnaround in those neighborhoods. And I thought about it in light of our, our upcoming podcast. And by the way, I know you own some property in Northern Liberty. Um, what is the characteristic of all of those? They're walkable, they have access to transit, and they're replete with destinations. So um, now Raj started to surface the whole idea of gentrification, something that Dara Williams, who you're going to talk about in a second, um, mentioned in her book. And so we have to take care as we start creating more and more of these walkable neighborhoods, which will raise property values, that they don't drive out the people that live there now, in fact, create a mechanism for sharing wealth with them. Yeah, I just want to make a comment. Raj mentioned New York, too, and maybe I'm wrong, but isn't Central Park a classic example of placemaking because it's a place where you can go enjoy wine by a lake, you can play softball, you can do this, you can that, you can go to the zoo. Yeah, it's a place on a grand scale, I would say. As Laura Williams pointed out in her book, and again, I'm talking too much about her or a lot about her right now, right? But she also mentioned that equal, if not more value, are smaller parks spread around a city. And so she mentioned Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. And in New York City, there's smaller places like Union Square and Washington Square. And that doesn't mean that Central Park's not a magnificent place, but perhaps better would be smaller, more and smaller neighborhood parks. Yeah, Washington Square, Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. Let's talk about Dar, singer, songwriter, author, and observer of the American scene. I think she's very, very perceptive about when she goes and sings in these small towns. She's not; she doesn't do big venues. She sings in small towns. Gary recommended her book to me. I think it's fascinating. It's called What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities. The town that I read about in there, there are a number to read about, is Beacon, New York, which I'm somewhat familiar with. Beacon, uh, sort of morphed from an industrial town on the Hudson River to a cultural mecca 60 miles north of New York. And a catalyst was this wonderful thing called Dia Beacon, which is, uh, according to Wikipedia anyways, one of the largest modern art museums in the United States. It, and um, as I read about this, I said, well, I got to get back up there because it's not the beacon I knew way back when, but got to go back and see this. So, Gary, as you know, the cornerstone of Dora's book is the concept of positive proximity. Simply explained, that means that great things can happen when neighbors get together and work together. And when great things happen, there's a cascading effect. So I think you and the Placemakers Guild and Dora are speaking the same language, just different dialects of the same language. She's coming coming at it from the point of view of an artist, poet, singer, writer, and you folks are coming at it from the need to do it and the technical expertise you have to do it. Correct? Am I right about that? Absolutely. I think that another way that Dar describes positive proximity is the state of living side by side in a way that's experienced and felt to be beneficial. And that's what we intend to do at Placemaker Skills. We intend to create places that um, where people just feel like it's an asset to live in the community and live close to each other. So it's not just creating bedroom communities where people still live side by side or not office complexes where people work side by side, but a rather array buildings and public spaces. And also it's with respect to the natural features that Dara talks about, right? You know, so Lamerville, we have the river, Burlington, Vermont has the mountains and it has the lakes. So when you create, when you just create individual buildings and you don't think about it, right? An office building is viewed as an asset for the people that want to work there, but for the people surrounding and the neighbors, they begin to oppose it. 
Yeah, I would add to that. Positive proximity of people is important, but what Gary's example with the building, the, the sequence of users, for example, malls are really good at this. They have figured out a formula where you have anchor stores and you have the little liner stores in between and people walk from one end to the other, get between the anchors and they pop into stores. Similar things like on Main Street, you know, there's a sequence. There's the pet groomer is, is next to maybe a salon or something, but Main streets have a diversity of uses that are proximate to one another. They're close together. You could park in one location, go to the bank, get your haircut, things like that. The proximity of people is dependent on the proximity of uses, building types, and things like that. And it's why in historic Main streets, they're about five minute walk long. They're 1,200 feet ish. After the war, our malls uh, or strip centers became spread out because it was a five minute drive. And you don't see anybody in that five-minute drive. You just park and leave. The proximity of uses that are close together, the diversity of uses, the diversity of uh, people, that's what makes it great. That's what makes it an outstanding place. Well, in her term, her term of positive proximity, she, she says it's dependent upon three elements. One, spaces, spaces that maximize the number of good interactions between human beings. Two, projects that build a town's identity. And three, translations. And that's all kinds of communication that open up a town to itself and to the world. So she's talking the same thing you're talking, correct? You know, somebody told me a long time ago that to be a great placemaker, you have to be a good observer of of life. And you have to see where people are getting together and know that that's a great place. And then you see where people are divided and you know that's not such a great place. And then you just look for the commonalities of the great places. So everybody can be a good placemaker if we're all looking carefully at what's going on. And she apparently is, and she's observed a thousand towns around the country. She's got, um, she's got her, her, her whole thing is playing small venues, not big venues like New York City or Philadelphia or L.A., but they're small towns around the country, and she's really taken the time to, to drink it all in and see what's good about it and what's bad about it. Does reinventing a town or inventing it, for that matter, have to be expensive? Well, I'll start with the idea of, no, not at all. 10, 20, 30 years ago in the planning process that I grew up in, mega projects were the solution to everything, and everything had to be put together. But now, reinventing a town can start with short-term, lighter, quicker, cheaper interventions, also known as capital urbanism. And, you know, traditionally, the design would try to make things look great and fancy and win awards and so on. But people flock to these places, right? I don't see people turning their noses up because of the absence of costly designs, right? They, they use places that are highly functional as opposed to expensive designs. And so, you know, I think we're kids at heart. And, you know, you remember how our kids would often play in the box. The toys would come into the Christmas and the expensive toys would sit on the side. Raj, what are your thoughts on this? In some places where... The bones of the community are there. You have short, walkable blocks. You have places that are easy to evolve because of the way infrastructure has developed over time. It's relatively easier than if you have what I'd call the typical suburban model of collector roads and arterial roads where things are spaced apart. You know, the example is you could live in a house that backs up to a grocery store 
and you can actually see the grocery store from your back window. But if you want to get to the grocery store, you have to walk out into your street, you have to walk to a collector's street, you have to walk down arterial streets, and you have to walk down the arterial street before you even get to the grocery store that you can see from your back window just across the fence. You know, those places are going to be harder to evolve into great places, but places that have a great network already where it's very even if you see it over the back fence, you only walk around the corner and you're there, they're easier to evolve into a great place. In some places where I live, just west of the city, they've built out. They can't go anywhere. So the only place they can go if they want to continue building in the city is up. And they're going to have to do some serious surgery to make that work. I had the place evolved with a fine grain network of walkable streets. It wouldn't have been as hard or it will not be as hard. It's easy in places where the bones are right, but no, it's very hard where the places aren't. But there are solutions. And as Gary said, as the placemaker guilds, we want to work with people in those communities to help them realize the potential of their place. Now, Raj, hey, I got a question for you. When you were talking about being hard for certain communities, now, have you found it more difficult since COVID hit to be uh, be more difficult to do these placemaking availabilities in certain areas? Are you finding it harder or is it a little bit easier because of the situation you're running into? I don't think it's harder. I think it's different. What's hard to do is over the internet, a lot of these things are, are now virtual. As a person who just turned 50, I'll tell you that not everybody is comfortable sitting at a virtual table. So you don't get the diversity of thought, of thought and opinion when you have to do things during COVID that are virtual. Yeah, yeah. Cause I, I feel the same way. I did a couple of Zoom meetings for the first time just a few weeks ago, and I didn't like it. I didn't love it. If I never have to do it again, I'm okay with that. I'm sure it's going to be a little bit more difficult, again, with making certain areas a little bit more easy and, and people feeling safe at that point, because I'm sure people are going to invest a, a ton of loot into an area if it's not going to work. So it's the question I would yeah. be thinking as a homeowner, if I'm buying in an area, how are we going to get it to work? That would be my difficult decision to, to re-engage. So are you finding that also as you're seeing as, as we go along? Yeah, and uh, you use the right word is, is to, to engage. We have to allow people who aren't comfortable in the Zoom universe some other avenue of getting involved in the process of making their own place great, relevant to them. And again, I'm positive in, you know, if not six months or a year, we're going to be back to where we're face-to-face and we'll have people in front of us again. You know, the pandemic has increased people's appreciation of being outdoors in public spaces and on streets. So the other day, I was on MLK Boulevard in Philadelphia, which has now been turned over strictly to pedestrians and bicyclists. They started it out during the pandemic. And even as the pandemic is winding down now, there's talk of making it permanent. Some good things came out of the pandemic. One of them was, in my development, more people get out and walk than they did before. You know, in the beginning, it couldn't go anyplace. So you see a lot of people in my development, which is an active adult community to begin with, doing that. Can reinventing a town include a public-private partnership? Absolutely, before turning this over to, to, to Raz, right? Traditionally, or a lot of people think of placemaking just as public spaces, and therefore the onus seems to be on government. The great cities are... Most of the bill form is actually created by the private sector, right? The, the, the buildings, the banks, and other things. And you can't reinvent a town simply via public spaces. So there really has to be a good partnership, right? And when I was at the DOT, and that's where I got to meet Raj, we were working together on, on these plans where the state transportation agency was working with local government and meeting with developers, right, and creating as I talked about before, a plan, a recipe for the whole pizza, the whole downtown Trenton, 
um, or Flemington, and as opposed to the individual elements. So it has to be a public-private partnership. Uh, how's the town that's ready to be reinvented? They want to do it. How do they get started? Well, that would be a good start, but I'll turn it over to Raj. Who I think <laughs> probably have more. Lead the fifth again, Gary. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I want to say that where a good placemaking starts is at the dining table with a few friends who have gathered and are talking about, you know, what they'd like to see, their, their, their dreams and desires for their community. That's not necessarily a political that, that That could be three neighbors on the back porch having a libation. And they create the catalyst. They speak to their other neighbors. They speak to their callers or, or council people. And from there, you start a plan. The problem is, um, at some point, somebody looks at this plan and they say, well, they want this and the other group over there wants this and another group over there wants something else and we don't have enough money in the pot to do all of these projects. And that's where you come up with prioritizing what we think or what they think can help change their place. It, it, it has to start local, it has to start small, and then it has to grow up. And at some point, we're going to hit prioritization. We can't do everything for everybody. So finding the key projects and spending the limited resources doing things really well. I talked to Gary a lot about particularly government. Government just creates the stage, so the streetscapes, the park, but it's really the shop owners and the people around that are the theater that create the activity and the action, and they have to work together. If you create a really bad stage, things fall apart, people get hurt, nobody wants to be there, but if you create the right stage, people will come, and they're the ones that make the places. So totally public-private. You can't do one without the other. You have to do it together. Yeah, it seems that way. And Raj triggered a thought when he talked about three people sitting around a dining room table. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen often enough. You can't just rely on serendipity. So for the last 20 years, starting when I was at the New Jersey Department of Transportation, and then when I went to the Project for Public Spaces, we would recreate that dining room table, but we would do it in a community center during a placemaking workshop, right? And there would be eight or 10 of these dining room tables set up in an auditorium with six to eight people sitting around the table. And a little bit of facilitation, they would start doing something called place mapping, which is start thinking about a town in terms of what are their favorite places, what are assets, what are liabilities, what's getting in our way, what are the opportunities. So it's that recreating that dining room table, I guess, is another good way to think about placemaking. And then, of course, the idea is come out of it and then you take people to individual sites that they identified on their map of, for instance, Doylestown, and go into these individual places on a second trip and start to talk about specifically what to do there. Okay, well, hold that thought. And I got great news for everybody here. I thought it'd be interesting to have Dar Williams join the Placemakers Guild on your valuable home soon to meld her take on how good things happen in towns, et cetera, et cetera. She thought so too. And I am delighted to tell you that she will be with us next week. So can you two guys come back next week or somebody from the Placemakers Guild come back next week and extend well, Ron, this conversation? Actually, yeah, we can come back and we will be back. 
Terrific. Okay, well, listen, thank you for your time today. Very enlightening and stimulating conversation. And it can only be more so when we get everybody together here next week. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you guys are definitely showing your age talking about dining room tables. Because that <laughs> dining room has been long gone. I don't think I put a dining room in a house in the last 15 to 20 years. So just want to get put that point across. But yeah, good talking to you guys. I really appreciate you coming on Your Valuable Home podcast. Gary Raj, thank you very much. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price.